We're taking a deep dive into an ocean simulation lab where engineers are bringing much-needed answers to the surface. Our guest today turns up the pressure and plunges underwater equipment into deep-sea conditions. How is his work improving entire industries, helping the U.S. Navy, and making the world safer? That's next on this episode of Technology Today. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the new Technology Today podcast presented by Southwest Research Institute. Hello and welcome to Technology Today. I'm your host, Lisa Benia. Imagine a catastrophic equipment failure in the depths of the ocean. Maybe a pipeline bursts or a diving suit or submarine fails. What are the implications for sea life, the ocean, the oil and gas industry, even human life? Our guest today is Joe Crouch, a Southwest Research Institute engineer and marine and offshore systems program director. He takes underwater equipment to the limit with the goal of avoiding a deep sea catastrophe. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Thanks for having me, Lisa. So, Joe, let's expand on the scenario scenarios I just explained. What could happen during a deep sea equipment failure? Well, Lisa, we don't have to imagine what could happen. It wasn't too long ago when we had an accident in the deep ocean, the uh, Deepwater Horizon accident in the Macondo well, where for days it was leaking lots of oil into the ocean and caused a, a big environmental disaster and cost billions of dollars. Those are the types of things that we're trying to prevent in the, o- the ocean simulation lab. So just to refresh our memories here, that Deepwater Horizon spill happened in April 2010, and it was an oil drilling rig that was operating in the Gulf. It exploded and sank, and 11 people died. So really, when this equipment fails, it's catastrophic. On It could be catastrophic on many levels. Absolutely. So, Joe, you run our Southwest Research Institute Ocean Simulation Lab, or OSL, which ultimately works to prevent these types of worst-case scenarios or disasters. So how does it work? What happens in this unique lab? So clients send us their equipment that they want to test in the ocean. Uh, The cost of testing it in the ocean can be exorbitant, taking it out on a boat and putting it in and having all the the people out there. So what we've established are some pressure vessels that we fill with water and we press up to simulate the environment of the ocean. And then we can run the the equipment through its functional testing or or up to failure. Okay, so let's go through some lab stats here. Um, Nearly 18,000 square feet of space, three separate buildings. The buildings house deep ocean pressure simulation test chambers that range from two to 90 inches in diameter. And your chambers range in depth from more than one foot to more than 20 feet deep. That's a huge range there. The chambers are designed for different water depths, exerting pressures from 2,500 to 60,000 pounds per square inch of pressure. So put that into perspective for us. How much pressure is that on a piece of equipment? Well, the the, the 60,000 is an awful lot. That's 30 tons per square inch. So that's, you know, several elephants standing on a postage stamp. Now, the deep ocean, the deepest part of the ocean, is only about 17,000 PSI. So we're actually testing at pressures much deeper than the deepest part of the ocean. And for those cases, oftentimes what we're simulating is the uh, geologic pressures, wellbore pressures that the Earth uh, exhibits on, on equipment. 
So even though the pressure is lower in the deep ocean, it's still possible that this equipment could face that sort of challenge on the, on the upper levels? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so how are the chambers constructed and how do they mirror the conditions in the ocean? Well, the, the chamber is simply a piece of pipe, if you will, that's very, very thick wall made out of steel. And you fill it up with water and you just keep pumping more water in there. And the water's incompressible, relatively speaking. So the pressure just keeps building and building and building and building until we reach the, the conditions that we want. We can chill it down to get to the refrigerated temperatures like 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Or we can heat it up to simulate other conditions where we can take it all the way up to 650 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's a range of pressure, a range of temperatures. And this is all because you want to know that this equipment can function in the worst possible conditions. Exactly. So um, what type of equipment are you evaluating in the OSL? Anything that goes in the water, for the most part, that will fit in our pressure vessels. Uh, We test everything from small little penetrators. Uh, Those are things that carry fiber optic or copper wires through the bulkhead of a, of a, a submerged object. Um, We test uh, camera housings, electronics housings, uh, one atmosphere dive suits for human occupancy, submarine bodies that fit uh, uh, things as simple as a piece of pipe or tubing that's going to be in an external pressure kind of situation uh, up to very large subsea valves that, uh, that get installed in the deep ocean. And for all of this equipment, the process is pretty much the same. You're taking this equipment and lowering it into these chambers to see how it reacts. That's pretty much it. And now there's, uh, you know, depending on what the piece of equipment is, we can be running very high voltages down to it, hydraulic uh, communication lines or electrical communication lines, uh, fiber optic communication lines, all those things penetrate through the the lid or the body of the pressure vessel and then uh, cycle the, the piece of equipment that's under test. So... The, the basic principle of, of simulating the ocean pressure is common. It's, it's, it's the same for all pieces of equipment, but it's what we're actually doing with those pieces of equipment while, while they're down there that makes it a, a little bit different each time. So what happens when the equipment fails in your lab? Do you take it that far to where you get a break? We do. We do. Uh, many times they want to test, test it to its ultimate limit, and so we'll take it to failure. Uh, when that happens, we very rarely have uh, what would be referred to as an implosion because we do things to to minimize that energy that's released during the implosion event. So we don't have explosions as, as you were um, uh, describing it, but uh, the amount of energy that gets released is controlled um, in the way that we actually test it. Oftentimes, all we're doing is testing for functionality, making sure that the piece of equipment won't leak, will operate as as designed under those pressures or temperatures. So take us to an offshore drilling site. What's going on there? What are they dropping into the ocean on a daily basis? And how do we fit into that puzzle? Well, most of what the oil industry is, is dropping down are valves, control pods, Um, other types of uh, operational equipment, laying down pipes, uh, running pipes from the drill platform down to the subsea for either drilling or production. And we test a lot of that equipment as long as it will fit in one of our pressure vessels. So anything that's smaller than 90 inches in diameter and less than about 22 foot long. So we chatted a little bit about this yesterday, but you get some questions as to how are you able to simulate the ocean in a landlocked city 
right here at Southwest Research Institute? You get that question a lot, huh? Well, we get why do we do it here in the middle of the South Texas desert? And the answer is because we're good at it. We've been doing this for uh, over five decades in, in South Texas. Um, the, the simulation of the, the deep ocean pressures, again, it's fairly easy to do that as long as you have a pressure vessel capable of the pressures that you're trying to generate. And we've We've expanded that over the last uh, five decades. We've had uh, as as little as 10 years ago, we only had about a dozen pressure vessels. Now we're up to uh, close to two dozen, and we have some additional ones that we can bring online. So who are your clients? Who, who needs your services the most? Anyone that wants to put something in the ocean comes to us. We do everything for from uh, small uh, fishing lures. Uh, people that want to test a, a new type of fishing lure, we've tested that uh, up to uh, small submersibles for, for various navies. Um, so we, we test uh, globally for all sorts of different uh, uh, clients, international and domestic, and we test just virtually anything that you want to make sure will survive in the water. We have tested it. So you do work for the U.S. Navy. You do some projects for them. Can you tell us about your work with the, with the U.S. Navy? Well, with U.S. Navy, we've done quite a bit of, of, of various things, everything from designing and, and fabricating the submarine rescue vehicle for the U.S. Navy. Uh, also, the uh, U.S. Navy owns the Alvin submersible, and we, we designed and built the, uh, the new titanium hull to take that to 6,500 meters, which is roughly about 98% of the ocean, everything but the Haddle Zones. Um, a haddle are all the trenches like the Marianas Trench, Puerto Rican Trench, etc. Um, the um, uh, strain gauging methodology that we've developed over the last five decades, uh, strain gauges measure the amount of deformation in an object. Uh, as you put that under pressure, that's an important aspect that you want to want to determine. And uh, the strain gauging methodology for deep ocean, uh, it, it's it's not trivial. You got to be very very specific on how you're applying those gauges, how you waterproof them, and and how you actually use them under the test so that you get good data. That's something that the Navy recognized, and they specify us to to help them uh, in uh, in various. Uh, test of equipment, whether it's uh, offshore, out in the ocean, or, or in one of our labs. And then our, our finite element analysis, our analytical skills that we've developed for deep ocean equipment, uh, de- designing stuff and fabricating stuff so that it is good for the deep ocean conditions. Uh, the U.S. Navy uh, recognizes our skills there. And so we do all of those things, including the test form. Can you talk about your work with submarine rescue Equipment? Sure. The submarine rescue, uh, following the Russian Kursk, which was a, a submarine that, that sunk in about 700 feet of water, uh, there was uh, survivors in, in the submarine, but unfortunately the Russians were unable to get to them because of a number of reasons. But one, the submarine was listed over at about 45 degrees. The U.S. Navy recognized that that's a real scenario, that we didn't have any real assets to be able to effectively rescue stranded submariners in that, that, uh, that scenario. So back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, we were contracted to design and fabricate uh, a vehicle with a skirt that was able to articulate to that 45-degree maximum so that you could attach it to the stranded submarine and rescue uh, people under pressure. The, um, 
interesting thing about uh, being in a stranded submarine is that just by breathing, you're building up pressure, but oftentimes you've had a rupture in your hull, and as the water's inrushed, it's compressed the air in there. So a lot of the rescued submariners may have a, uh, a decompression commitment. So something, the bins, you've heard of, of divers getting the bins, that's what happens. So this vehicle we designed and built is capable of rescuing them under pressure, bringing them back to the surface, transferring them under pressure to a decompression chamber on the deck of the ship, and then, um, you know, getting them to the hospital as soon as you can. So this is really life-saving research and development at this point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're currently doing the same thing for the Commonwealth of Australia. So we've got a new new program that we're, we're actually getting uh, underway right now. Yeah. So you, this has garnered international attention now. You are, have become sort of the go-to team for this type of work. And what... Um, when you were contacted to work with the Australian government, what is it that they wanted you to do for them? Well, it's basically the same thing. It, it builds on our expertise in this field, um, taking the uh, minimalist approach in the design to get them something that will work that is not overly expensive, overly heavy, small enough to, to fit on a 747 so that they can fly it to, to various areas where there may be a, a stranded submarine. So when there is a stranded submarine, time is of the essence, obviously. And does this happen often? or is Well, this... fortunately, it doesn't happen often, but it's happened often enough. And, and unfortunately, yeah, time is of the essence. Um, if you're stranded in shallow water, you, you really only have enough oxygen for a, a relatively short period of time. So we'd like to be able to get to them and rescue them within about 72 hours. Okay, so you did mention the Alvin Submersible, kind of to change topics here. What is the Alvin Submersible? The Alvin Submersible is operated by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Uh, it's owned by the U.S. Navy, and it is a three-person research sub that was built back in the 60s. Um, the Alvin comes from one of the Woods Hole uh, scientists named Alan Vine, and so he was one of the instrumental personnel that that really pushed to get this thing built. And so it was named after him, and Alan Vine became Alvin. Uh, the Alvin has been around for a number of years. It was uh, one of the uh, uh, two submersibles that uh, found a hydrogen bomb that had been dropped in the uh, Mediterranean uh, inadvertently due to an air collision. Um, it found the, uh, well, didn't actually find, but the first to allow people to lay eyes on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Uh, and then also uh, Bob Ballard was in it when he found the Titanic. And that's its claim to fame. That's its, its primary claim to fame, which is a, an interesting story, if I may. Yeah, please. The, uh, the uh, original plan that, that um, Bob Ballard was operating under was a classified program. And it's been recently unclassified. So the truth of the matter is Bob was not looking for the Alvin. He was looking for two other submarines. Or the using, Titanic. Or, the, excuse me, yeah. the Titanic. He was in the Alvin <laughs> right. looking for the Titanic. So Bob was not actually looking for the Titanic. He was looking for two submarines that had imploded. And when something implodes, as it sinks, it tends to leave a long debris trail. So he was using side scan sonar to look for this long debris trail to try to find these submarines. One was Russian, one was American. And that was the covert project he was working on, not looking for the Titanic. Titanic was a cover story. 
unfortunately for the Navy, he found the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> but it was good for us because we, we now know where the Titanic is and, and we've been able to visit it numerous times. Yeah, and obviously a huge deal for uh, to be able to find that treasure in the ocean. Yeah. So um, what is our tie to the Alvin Submersible? Well, we did some of the original testing on the hull back in the 60s. And then the new hull we designed and built, it was a titanium hull to take it from 4,500 meter maximum water depth to 6,500 meter maximum water depth, allows it to cover about 98% of the ocean. And um, again, they wanted to use a lot of their old assets. So we were constrained by how uh, large it could be, how heavy it could be, but it needed to go 50% deeper. So a lot of challenges, and and, uh, we were successful in building that, and now we've got a vehicle that's capable of diving to 6,500 meters. So it really is like a search vessel. A a research vessel, right. It's to take take humans down to the bottom of the ocean and actually lay eyes on what's going on. You can do some of that with an ROV, a remotely operated vehicle, but handling those long depths of cable can be a problem. You can get get uh, spooling issues and cables get wrapped around things. Having an actual vehicle with a person down there looking around through the viewports, seeing what they want to touch, reacting at, at real time. It's the same argument we have in deep space. Having a person out there being able to, to, to physically make decisions on the spot without looking at a camera, waiting through the time delays and all those kinds of things, just always better to have people you know, on site. So as someone new to this terminology, what's the difference between submersible and submarine? There is no difference other than typically a submarine is something that you put people in. And so it has life support issues. A submersible can be anything that goes underwater. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. (laughs) (laughs) So you are working with the Australian uh, submarine rescue system team, as we, as we mentioned. Are you working on other uh, submersible projects or submarines, submarines at this time? Currently, we don't have anything else that we're doing uh, specific to that. With the Commonwealth of Australia, there's actually two vehicles that we're working on. Uh, there is a deep water submarine rescue vehicle, which is very similar to what we did with the Navy. But then we're also uh, working on a shallow water uh, rescue platform, which is more like a diving bell with an articulating transfer skirt on there. So we're, we're heavily engaged in that as well. So you are day in, day out, looking at ocean conditions and um, trying to recreate them, and you are successfully recreating them. But does your work actually take you out to the ocean? Not as often as we would like. We do get on occasion uh, opportunities to go offshore. Uh, One of the the recent um, efforts we had, the uh, U.S. Navy wanted us to do some strain gauging on a platform that was mounted to a barge. It's called a LARS or a Launch and Recovery System. And uh, they wanted us to put some field strain gauges on. And then the team actually rode out on the barge out into the middle of the Pacific. Well, not the middle of the mm-hmm. Pacific, but far enough out near Catalina Island and, and operated the system with the, uh, the U.S. Navy and, and civilian contractors. I suppose it's nice to get out once in a while and just kind of get a feel for what the actual ocean is like and bring that back into your lab, I would assume. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So let's see. Wanted to find out a little bit more about you, why you do what you do. What is the most fulfilling part of your job? 
You know, the most fulfilling part is really the, the, the knowledge that we're doing things that, that both protect the environment and also potentially save human lives. Uh, I sit on a, a, a rules committee called PVHO. It's the American Society of Mechanical Engineers for Pressure Vessels for Human Occupancy, and that's where PVHO comes from. And we create the rules for medical hyperbaric chambers, uh, saturation diving systems, submersibles. Um, and, and when you're looking at that, you're thinking about the fact that people are climbing into these, these structures, and their life purely depends on the you know, the rules that you have put in place, the testing requirements that you've established. And so, you know, when you go to bed at night and you think about the fact that some of the things that you're doing uh, may have saved somebody's life, at least, you know, in the recent past or, or in the recent future, that's a very, very fulfilling uh, uh, day's work. It's a huge responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're, you know, the, your equipment that you've tested is being used offshore, um, they're looking for a certain level of assurance that it's going to succeed out there. So what is your, how do you sign off on a piece of equipment that this has been tested and, you know, it's good to use now? Yeah, we don't typically sign off on anything. It's not, not our role. They Oftentimes you will have a certifying body like Lloyd's Register, the American Bureau of Shipping, uh, DNVGL. Um, those are the groups that will actually ensure, so to speak, that things are done. What we do is provide the service to do the testing that is either prescribed by these certifying bodies or by the customer and we replicate the conditions that they need to, and we provide the data at the end that says, yay, verily, everything uh, passed. So it goes through a series of checks exactly. prior to mm -hmm. being used. So at the beginning, we spoke about the Deepwater Horizon spill, the loss of life. That was back in April 2010. Have things gotten more strict since then? Are there higher? Is there a higher threshold to meet? There's not so much a higher threshold as there is a, a, an increased amount of testing. And what I mean is there were things that were looked at as not really necessary to test or, or analyze as, in as much detail as we need to do nowadays. So there has been an increase in the amount of testing that we've been doing since that time. And is that a f regulation now or is that more of your clients requesting a little bit of both, but much of it is regulation. Uh, BSEE, which is the um, uh, federal agency that has that regulatory um, responsibility for the Gulf of Mexico, they have implemented more stringent requirements on offshore equipment. Okay, so um, anyone in the industry is going to be able to learn more about what you guys do here at Southwest Research Institute, because next month you will be at the Offshore Technology Conference at Energy Park in Houston. That's May 6th through May 9th, 2019, booth number 2201. And there will be a number of presentations showcasing your team's capabilities. This is a huge offshore conference. Uh, you were explaining it's pretty much... Close to about 100,000 people. You yeah, it's one of the largest conferences, I believe, anywhere. It's, it's around 100,000 or more people each year uh, come to find out. And, and as I was explaining before, the, uh, the offshore platform is really a city out at sea. 
So everything from janitorial services, transportation services, uh, cafeteria services, medical services, as well as all of the equipment for for drilling and completing a, a well. So it's it's there's a whole lot of people and and a whole lot of uh, exhibitors there. Uh, we will have a number of presentations for the work that we do, but we also, as Southwest Research, do a whole lot of work for the oil and gas industry, both upstream and downstream. Um, so we've got a number of people from other departments, other divisions that will actually be doing presentations there as well. All right. That sounds exciting. May 6th through May 9th in Houston. And uh, we'll we'll put a link on our website for yeah. more information Come about that. Come out and that. see us. Well, thank you for joining us today, Joe, and for this deep dive into ocean testing and why it's so important for efficiency and really for safety overall. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Lisa. And that wraps up this episode of Technology Today. Subscribe to the Technology Today podcast to hear in-depth conversations with people like Joe Crouch, changing our world and beyond through science, engineering, research, and technology. Connect with us on our Southwest Research Institute social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn for the latest Technology Today episodes and much more. Thanks for listening.